Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, and so as we open up the Word of God, let's go to the God of the Word and ask Him to reveal truth to us. Lord, we thank you uh, for today. Thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the incredible mercy that you have lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is who we are. That you love us, that you sent your son to die for us, and that you are a personal God, and you relate to us as our Father, and we are your children because of Christ. And you make yourself known to us through your word. And Lord, I do pray, help us not to take this truth for granted. Help us, Lord, as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Can you make yourself known to us? Can you reveal truth? Open up our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our minds. Help us to understand. And Lord, I do pray, may this be more than just head knowledge that we understand, but can this knowledge transform our hearts? Can it lead into being more obedient to you? Can your spirit just fill this place and illuminate truth to us as we learn that we cannot understand the things of God without the spirit of God? And so, Lord, we admit our, our shortcomings. We just can't understand your word without you. So help us, Lord. Help me to proclaim the gospel in a way that's understandable, a way that, that is clear. And Lord, for those who do not know you, for those who have not surrendered their life to you, can you help them to turn to you, help them to respond in repentance and faith? So come, Lord, and speak to us, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. As we continue our series uh, through the letter of, of 1 Corinthians, um, what Paul is doing in this letter, he is persuading and reasoning with the church of Corinth, and he's addressing ten, 10 issues. And basically, in all the 10 issues that he is addressing, the main message he's trying to communicate to them is that because of the gospel, it requires God's holy people to pursue purity and unity. And, and what he means by purity, in, in a sense, is that uh, is we, we become more distinct from the world. We start to look different, and as the church and as the people of God matures in more purity, becomes more distinct from the world, we will mature in unity. And so that's my hope for us as a church in this series, is that we as the people of God will mature in purity, will become more distinct from the world, and that will lead to a greater unity or a greater love among the people of God. Now, over the last few weeks, we've seen kind of how Paul has addressed the issue of division in the church. The church in Corinth were divided over church leaders, and this division led to factions and dissension. And what Paul is doing is he's appealing to them basically and saying, here's the reason why the church should you be united is the gospel requires the church to be united because the gospel is what unites the church. And so over the last several weeks, really what Paul's been doing, he's been unpacking the gospel. Like, like last week, he talked about what's the central message of the gospel. It is a crucified Savior. Then he talked about like, like what are the followers of Christ look like compared to that, that of the world. And the followers of Christ are the low status people. You see, the world chooses the best, the brightest, the strongest. And who does the Lord choose? The uneducated, the disdained, the weak is wise, so that no one will be able to boast in his presence. And so if these two truths are true, the message is a crucified Savior and the world sees it as foolish, at weak, what does that mean? That means for us we shouldn't follow the worldly values and wisdom, but rather we should fix our eyes on Christ who is the power and wisdom of God. And if the world chooses the best, the brightest, and God chooses the opposite so that no one can boast in his presence, what does it mean for us? That means that we, as a people of God, should walk in humility because we are God's chosen people. And he didn't choose us because we were so awesome. It was actually the opposite. 
And so today, Paul is going to continue unpacking the gospel. And this time, uh, what he's going to do is he's going to show us the method of why he proclaimed the gospel and the way he proclaimed. And then he's going to show us how the people get to hear the gospel, understand the gospel, and is transformed by the gospel. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. So, Paul is reminding the church that his method of preaching the gospel was unimpressive. Now, as we read this text, like our initial reaction to this, I'm sure there's a lot of questions coming up. Like the initial reaction is, okay, why did Paul not use eloquent wisdom or persuasive words to convert people? Like, does that mean that every time we proclaim the gospel, we can't use eloquent words and per- persuasive wisdom to, to persuade people? Like, like, did Paul not, in certain instances, use persuasion and use eloquent words? Does that mean we have to dumb down the gospel in such a way so that we don't distract from it? Like, what does he mean by all of these questions, by all of these things that he is saying? And how do we answer the questions? And I think the best way to look at this passage and to be able to understand the the questions and what Paul is doing, it is important for us to understand the original context of the Greco-Roman world in which the church in Corinth operated. Once we understand that, then we start to understand what Paul means by all of these things. Now, let's do the hard work and do some cultural background. Now, in our culture... In the 21st century, the people who we value the most are the people who excel in business, in sports, music, and entertainment. These are the most popular people. These are the ones that influence our culture. These are the ones that everybody wants to be like. We spent thousands of dollars to watch them use their craft and their skill on the court or on the field. We want their signatures and their autographs. We want their skills. We want to be just like them. We want to be in their presence. And these are our heroes. That's in our culture. That's our culture today. But in the Greco-Roman culture on Paul's day, Those celebrities were not athletes, they were not actors, they weren't musicians, but rather they were the academic professors, the philosophers, and the debaters. Those were the celebrities back in the day. And they were called sophists, debating and flashing skills and and speeches was both a science and an art polished skill that will require wit, deep knowledge, impeccable logic, passion, and the use of colorful languages. And the topics that would range from politics to law to religion or business. And the most successful sophists will have the most followers. And so what these people would be doing is they would travel from city to city and they would engage with debates with one another and give flashy speeches. And the more eloquent they were and the more they won the debates, the more people would come and listen to them and actually pay them, I want to say thousands of dollars. That's just so that we can understand. I don't know what the currency was back in the day. They would give them a ton of money just so that they could learn from them and become their students. And so when Paul comes to the city of Corinth, he knew in the back of his mind that the city of Corinth would expect him to act just like these sophists. That he needs to mimic these flashy speeches and that his fear was that people will be more impressed by him and not impressed by the gospel. 
And so we know from Scripture that Paul does not oppose uh, using eloquent wisdom, reasoning with people. Like, have you read some of his letters? The dude's brilliant. Like, remember in Acts chapter 17 when he went and he kind of proclaimed the gospel among the Athenian philosophers? Like, did you read that in Acts 17? The wisdom that he uses, you're like, man, this guy is absolutely brilliant. So he does not oppose it. But rather, when he's coming to the city of Corinth, knowing the environment, knowing the culture of these sophists, Paul is saying to himself, no, I don't want to distract from the gospel. These people are going to believe in me because what do these sophists do? These sophists use incredible wisdom. They use manipulation, all the art they could gather to convince people to follow them and give them tons of money. And Paul says, no, I just want to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And by proclaiming the gospel, I'm not going to rely on my skill or on my intellect, but rather on the Spirit's power. So that's the cultural background that's going on here. Does everybody understand that so far? Okay. Now look at verse 1. What does Paul call himself? Paul says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing. Okay, so or heralding or proclaiming in other words what Paul sees himself he sees himself as a proclaimer as an announcer as a herald and what is he announcing what is he proclaiming what is he heralding the mystery or in some of your translations the testimony of God so in other words instead of creating persuade or created creatively persuading people with his own message as a savvy speaker he is simply proclaiming the message that God, was, was, that God had given him. And then Paul really supports the statement of simply being an announcer with, with three proofs. Unlike the sophists who have many messages depending on the city and depending on the opponent, how many messages does Paul have? Look at verse 2. Only one. What does he want people to know? Christ Jesus and him crucified. Second proof is unlike the sophists who walk with swagger and probably have the designer tunics. Look at Paul's presence. Unimpressive. And verse 3, it tells us he came in weakness, fear, much trembling. It's like however you want to interpret it, we can all agree that Paul does not have any swagger. People are not going to follow him because of his style. He is unimpressive. And then unlike the sophists who styles and content were oppressive, impressive, Paul's style and content of his message was unimpressive and perhaps even foolish to some. However, the power of the sophists were in themselves and in their style and in, and in how they looked and how they carried themselves. But for Paul... The power was where? In the Spirit of God. And so the reason for Paul's method of simply proclaiming Christ and him crucified was to make sure that the Corinthians' faith was not in anything human-related, but was ultimately in God's power alone. That's why he he says in verse 5, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. And who is God's power? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. What does it say? Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. And so what's Paul's point here? Paul's point here is that I want to make sure that your faith is in God's power, a.k.a. in Christ and in Christ alone. So, so let's just stop here. What's the issue that Paul is addressing? He's addressing the issue of division in the church. So what does he have to say about his style and his preaching? What does it have to do with the unity of the church? And I think if you're taking notes, here's the first thing we can learn. The message that they have heard about a crucified Savior 
is not a demonstration of man's power, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Like, this is the very first truth he's teaching us, and he's teaching the, the, the church in Corinth. The message that you have heard about a crucified Savior, remember that is central to his message, is not a demonstration of man's power and man's ability, but is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul wanted to make sure that these Corinthians and their faith was not in a leader or in man whatsoever, but rather was in God and God's power alone, a.k.a. Christ. That's the principle he's teaching here. So what does it have to do with unity? Division begins to creep into a church when we have misplaced faith. Division creeps in when we have misplaced faith. When we start to put our faith in ourselves or in our performance or in our leaders or in our theology or in our mind or in our methods or in our styles, whenever we put our faith in anything other than in Christ, division creeps in. Why? Because what we put our faith in other than Christ does not have the power to unite us. It might gather us for a little bit. We can rally around it for a little bit. But it will never create long-sustaining unity. Because eventually our differences now will become divisive. But the only thing that can unite us is Jesus Christ. And this is Paul's point here. I, in my proclamation of the gospel, I wanted to proclaim it in such a way, unlike the sophists, so that I can make sure that your faith is not in me, in my credibility, in my style, in my ministry, or in anything else other than in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. And this is what we have to learn. And let's just be honest. We have a tendency to misplace our faith all the time. Like, like we get distracted. Like, like so many times, like we have a great week and what do we start to do? Oh man, I think I got this. I, I got a handle on this. And what do you start to do? You start to put your faith now in your performance and in your ability and your skill and your logic and your reason and your self-discipline. And then what does the Lord graciously do? He disciplines you by allowing you to fall and you realize it's foolish to put your faith in anything other than in Christ. I mean, this is what happened to the church in Corinth. This is what happened in the church today. We misplace our faith. We put it in all these things, rally around all these things instead of in Christ. And so for the church of Corinth, think about it. They misplace their faith in church leaders. Now, now, think about church leaders. Are church leaders a gift from the Lord? Yes, they are. Do they play an important role in the church? Yes, they do. Should people be able to follow their leaders and submit to the leaders and trust the leaders, believing that they're following Christ? Yes. Should your faith be in them? No. Because they're going to disappoint. They are human. They do not have the power to unite the church. Only Jesus does. And this is what we have to understand. And so maybe a question that you need to, to ask yourself personally is, where do you have a tendency to place your faith in other than Christ at times? Like, what are you tempted to, where are you tempted to misplace your faith? And Paul, and me and my desire for Paul is like, we want to make sure that your faith is in Christ and in Christ alone. That's the only thing that's going to unite. Let's move on. Paul's now going to show the Corinthians how they came to understand the message, how they came to be transformed by the message. Now, I'm just going to give you a little note here. This is very complex, a text. Um, so maybe if you read it ahead of the week, you're wondering where in the world is going to go, where in the world is gonna, this guy going to go with it? Um, I'm going to fly through it and just give you a big general principle, Okay. 
Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time unpacking this because it's very complex. I want us to see the big picture that he is giving us. So let's not get lost in the weeds. Let's kind of look at the big picture here. But I'm also not going to fly through it that there's no um, uh, reasoning or explanation. So let's look at verse 6. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So let's stop here. What's Paul saying? Paul says, look, we are imparting a a wisdom. This wisdom that we're imparting, we're not imparting it to everyone, but we're imparting it to the mature. Now you're thinking to yourself, what does he mean by the mature? Paul's not trying to be mean, but rather what he's doing, he's picking up the term the sophists would use because they would describe themselves, we are the mature, we are the elitists. Give us money and follow us so that you can become mature like us. And what Paul is saying is, no, we do impart a wisdom. That is for the mature, but unlike the sophists who think they're mature, these people who are mature are the ones who are believers, who are are the ones who follow a crucified Savior. And this wisdom that Paul is imparting is not what the famous sophists would describe wisdom. Their wisdom, does their wisdom last? No. Look look at the end of verse verse, uh, 6. No. Their wisdom comes to, to nothing. In other words, like the sophists, they come up with these theories, they come up with these new ideas, and everybody is just amazed by it. And guess what happened to their ideas? The ideas grow cold and old because new ideas come. That's their wisdom. And, and, and Paul says, no, we speak a hidden, secret wisdom, a mystery. So, so what does Paul mean by a hidden mystery, a, a secret? Now, for us, when we think about the word mystery, when we think about uh, the idea of hidden secret, it, we, we come to the conclusion that it is something that we cannot fully understand. How does it work? I don't know. It's a mystery. But for Paul, and when Paul's using this language... This mystery refers to something we could never understand on our own until God has revealed it. So so this hidden mystery that Paul is talking about, he is now saying has been revealed to us by God. And what is this hidden mystery? It is the crucified Savior. It was revealed to us. It was hidden and now God has revealed it and yet it still remains hidden to those who do not believe because if they did believe, they would never have crucified Jesus. And this specific timing of God revealing this mystery, notice what he says this. Uh, He says in verse 7, on the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom and a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages of, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom. So in other words, when did God plan to reveal this? He planned it ahead of time, before the ages. And yet, did the rulers of the age know it? No. So, so what he's talking about here? Think about this. The Jewish leaders and the Roman officials, they thought they were being wise by capturing Jesus, bringing him through an unjust trial, bringing him before Pilate, and demanded him to be executed. 
And after his execution, more than likely, they're high-fiving one another and saying, look at our wisdom. Look at how we dealt with this issue. We finally got rid of Jesus once and for all. And yet what Paul is saying is, yeah, that was part of God's predetermined plan before the ages of this world. Did these people act on their own wickedness? Absolutely. Was that part of God's predetermined plan? Absolutely. Uh, Peter even picks up the same theme in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He says, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and to kill him. And this is, this is Paul's point in a sense. Like this hidden mystery God has now revealed to those who believe. And those who don't believe continue in their wickedness. And they were actually responsible for killing Jesus. That they act on their own accord and their own wickedness? Absolutely. Did their wickedness frustrate God's plan? No. And this is the point he's making. And then he says, what's the purpose of God revealing this mystery? He says, the purpose, uh, verse 7, the end of verse 7, on the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom and a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. In other words, what he means by that is the future saving when God will glorify his people. Did God reveal this mystery to everybody? Look at verse 8. No, because none of the rulers of the age knew this wisdom. Because if they did, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would have acted different. And so since God did not reveal his wisdom to the rulers of this age, then who did he reveal the wisdom to? Look at verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So in other words, like, and we're going to see this, that he, here's the main principle that he's teaching throughout this text. Like, God revealed his wisdom to his people through his spirit. How did God reveal this wisdom? He revealed his wisdom to his people through his spirit. Why through the spirit? Because the spirit searches out everything, including the depths of God. And now he's going to explain the important work of the spirit. Look, look at verse 11. He says, for who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God so that we may understand what God has been freely given to, what, what he has freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Again, this, this, this passage is so complex, but here's the point that Paul is making. Who can know God's thoughts? The Spirit of God. And who did God give His Spirit to? His people. And what was the purpose? So that they would understand what God has revealed to them. So that they would understand the wisdom of God. And people can only understand the wisdom of God if they have the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit of God, they cannot understand the wisdom of God. And then when he says, the one who is spiritual... He's not meaning the one who's more mature, but rather he's meaning the one who has the Spirit. Because what Paul is doing, he's really contrasting the difference between worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. The world spirit versus God's Spirit. The people of this world who, has the, who does not have the Spirit and the people of God who does have the Spirit. And he continues this contrast in verse 14. Look at this. 
But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolish to him. He's not able to understand it since, it's evalu- since it is evaluated spiritually. And the spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything and yet himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Again, what is he doing? Comparing, contrasting. The person without the Spirit, the unbeliever, cannot accept the truths of God. Why? Because he looks at God's truth, he does not have the Spirit, and he sees it as foolish, as weak. The person without the Spirit cannot understand God's truth because you can only understand God's truth with God's Spirit. But in contrast to that person, the one who does have the Spirit, the one who is the believer, can evaluate and understand the things of God because they have what? The Spirit of God. And then he quotes Isaiah 40, 13. Who can understand God's wisdom unless God reveals it to us? So it's ridiculous to think we can give God advice and tell him what to do. But those who have the Spirit can understand God's wisdom. And then he says, we have the mind of Christ. Again, we can spend hours unpacking this passage, but I think here's the main message if you're taking notes. And I think it was maybe already on, on the screen behind me. Here's the big thing you need to take away with. God revealed his wisdom to his people through his Spirit. Like, that's the big thing. God revealed his wisdom. And when we say his wisdom, we mean the message of a crucified Savior. He revealed it to his people through his Spirit. By having the Spirit and understanding God's wisdom, we're being now transformed by the Spirit of God, and having the mind of Christ. So again, what's the issue Paul's addressing? Division. So you're like, okay, well, what does this have to do with with unity? Okay, what's the truth he, he communicated? We as the people of God, God has revealed his wisdom to us, And we did not understand this wisdom through our own intellect and our own ability, but rather through the Spirit of God that was given to to us. And that, in a sense, has given us the mind of Christ. And when we look at the things of God, when we look at the text, we can understand why. Because we're smart, because your pastor does a good job explaining it, actually the opposite, but rather because you have what? You have the Spirit. You have the Spirit of God. This is why we can understand the things of God. This is why we can take off the old self, put on the new self. And here's where division creeps in. And here's Paul's point. That division creeps in when we no longer walk by the Spirit and we now begin to be influenced by the things of this world or the Spirit of the world. Like there's almost seems like this this tension because when you are saved, when you've been transformed, what do you have inside of you? You have the Holy Spirit. And so in a sense, you have the Spirit of God, but then the apostles tell us to do what? The uh, The apostles tell us to walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, walk in step by the Spirit. And you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a second here. Why do you tell me to do it if I already have the Spirit of God in me? And it's something that God has already done, and yet He calls us to to do something. He calls us like, you have the Spirit of God inside of you. But what do you need to do? You need to walk by the Spirit. And, and I, think the, I think the reason why, and let me not just say this is what the apostles say. Let me give you the verses. Paul commands us, Galatians 5.16, he, he says, I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. Why does he tell that to Christians who have the Spirit of God? 
Verse 25, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Again, why does he tell Christians these things if they already have the Spirit of God in them? It's almost as what theologians call the already, not yet. We've been saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. We have the Spirit of God that made us new. Those who are in Christ are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. And yet, what do we still wrestle with? The old self. Paul tells us, take off the old, put on the new. And here's why. Because we're so used to listening to our old slave master. We're so used to listening to our old self and the spirit of the world that we now have this new master and it becomes more natural for us to listen to the old and we have to discipline ourselves in listening to our new master. Saying, this is not who I am anymore. I do not owe allegiance to you anymore, old self. This, the, the sinful self, the spirit of the world. I have a new master. I have a new spirit. I have a new self. I got to walk in it. Live by it. Walk and step by it. And this is what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to remind them, hey guys, don't you have the Spirit? If you understood God's truth and you were saved by it, you have God's Spirit, which makes you distinct from this world. And if you have God's Spirit, you have the mind of Christ. It will be foolish for you to continue to act like the world. So if these two truths are true that Paul teaches us, that the message about a crucified Savior might seem weak, foolish, and it's proclaimed out of weakness, but as a demonstration of God's Spirit, and God reveals His wisdom about a crucified Savior to His people through His Spirit. What does that mean for us? What are some applications that we can take to walk in unity? If you're taking notes, we've got to do application and then we're done here. The first thing is this. Rely on the Spirit's power, not only to proclaim the, the gospel, but also that unites us in the gospel. We've got to rely on the, the Spirit of God. Every time we proclaim the gospel, what do we do? We rely on the Spirit of God. You know what's going to unite us? Spirit of God. Does that mean we have a part? Oh, absolutely. But praise the Lord that the, the only part is not just us, but that His Spirit is working. Are we commanded to proclaim the gospel to everybody? Yes. Is, do we have the ability to save people? No. We're commanded to clearly articulate the gospel in words that people can understand. And we can do it as a demonstration of the Spirit's power that will take the words and somehow reveal truth to them, open up their eyes so that they may respond. For the Spirit is the one who illuminates truth and is the one who regenerates them and transforms them. And what is our job? Proclaim the gospel. I don't know about you, but to that truth, it is, it is so encouraging to me as your pastor. Because you know why? I have to proclaim the gospel Sunday in, Sunday out. And if it was dependent on my ability and my performance and my eloquent wisdom and my swagger, it would be crushing. Because when nobody responds, I would walk out of here thinking, I probably need to do it better. Maybe I did it wrong. Maybe people didn't understand me. And it doesn't mean we can't get better at it, but the pressure is not on us. Because in our weakness of proclaiming the gospel, we are demonstrating God's spirit, the power of God's spirit that has the ability to transform. The same with unity. How do you lead a church that's divided? Like how much pressure it is it for us to be part of a church that's divided? And we're thinking, how are we going to fix this? And yet, what can we do? As we walk in the Spirit, we can rely on the Spirit to do what? 
unite us, convict us, reveal truth to us, allow us to repent, allow us to confess, allow us to look at one another in a charitable way, to be kind, to be loving, to be gracious. These are all the fruit of the Spirit. It's because the Spirit of God that is doing all of these things. So what is our job? Our job in the process of proclaiming the gospel and working towards unity is to rely on the Spirit of God in the process. For Paul reminds us, we all, if you're in Christ, have received the Spirit. The second application is this. Praise God for enabling us to understand His wisdom through His Spirit. Like, praise God that He had enabled us to understand His wisdom through His Spirit. I think that here's a truth we need to understand. The difference between you and between you as a believer and a non-believer is not because you're smarter and brighter. The difference is that one has the spirit and the other one doesn't. The only reason you're in Christ. Because God, in some way, has given you His Spirit to open up your eyes for you to respond and to trust Him. And that Spirit has revealed truth. And the gospel, that when the world looks at it, they see it as foolish, as useless, and weak, a crucified Savior. That is just, doesn't make any sense. And you're looking at it and you're like, this is brilliant. Why? Because the Spirit of God has illuminated that truth to you and allowed you to understand. The Spirit of God had allowed you to understand and celebrate the wisdom to see that truly has been revealed to you and to see it as lovely and as pure and as right. And that means there's no reason for us to celebrate our own elitist wisdom Because the reason why we're here is by God's grace. And we as a people should walk in humility and we should praise God. Now, I think there's instructions for believers and non-believers in this sermon. The instruction for the believer, if you are a follower of Christ and you have the Spirit of God, the instruction for you is to walk in that Spirit to walk in the spirit that you've received, to boldly proclaim the message, to praise God for the gift that he has given you, and to trust that the spirit keeps us united. Now for the non-believer, and I know even some of you believers might be thinking this. You're saying, okay, Neil, I don't believe, I don't see yet, and you're saying the only way I'm going to believe and only way I'm going to see is if God give me his spirit. So how do I know whether God is going to give me his spirit or not? We don't, but here's what you can do. Why don't you ask God? Why don't you ask God for his spirit? If you truly want to understand the things of God, Ask him. Well, doesn't Jesus say, whatever you ask for in my name? Fill in the blank. I'll give you. You have not because you've asked not. And if you ask according to God's will, don't you think it's according to God's will to give people his spirit and lavish his spirit freely on him? So the instruction is if you're, if you're freaking out and saying, well, maybe God's not going to give me his spirit, get on your knees and humble yourself before the Lord and ask him to give you his spirit. If you're a believer and maybe you have lost children and you have lost brothers or, uh, or sisters or moms or dads and you're like, oh, so the only way they're going to understand is if God gives them the spirit, then get on your knees and ask God to give them the spirit. And why can we ask God for these things? Because he's a wicked God, a mean God, an angry God? No, what does the Bible teach us about God? He is loving, he is kind, he is patient, he is gentle. And it's on that basis that we can plead with the Lord to save people and give them his spirit. 
Oh, what a day it would be if the people of God would humble themselves and ask for the outpouring of His Spirit on lost people. And what an incredible thing it would be when lost people say, I need the Spirit to understand this because this message makes no sense whatsoever. And God just pours out His Spirit on that person. So there's your application for the non-believer. If you want to understand the gospel, if you want to surrender your life to Christ, ask the Lord to give you his spirit, and he, he would. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed your wisdom to us through your spirit. It's not something we've earned, we've deserved. You have freely lavished your spirit upon us. For many of us, we weren't even looking for you. We weren't even chasing after you, and you intervened and opened up our eyes. For others, we were searching and we're struggling, and you opened up their eyes through your spirit. And so, Lord, as believers, as followers of Christ, can you help us to walk and step with your spirit? Can you help us to walk by the spirit? and to proclaim the gospel as a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And help us to praise you that you've revealed truth to us through your Spirit. And Lord, for those who do not know you, for those who have not surrendered their life to you, can you stir in their heart where they are now on their knees, begging for your Spirit to open up their eyes and to convict them of sin. And Lord, can you hear them, can you see them, and can you answer them? As we continue to pray, um, a couple of things I want you to meditate on. The first question is, what areas in your life are you misplacing your faith? And the second one, what I want you to ask is, are you walking in step with the Spirit? Are you walking depending on the Spirit of God? Are you being obedient to the Spirit of God or are you walking in your old self? And this morning, if you don't believe, if you've not surrendered your life to Christ, our central message is a crucified Savior. The gospel says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We needed a Savior, and God, through his incredible grace and mercy, provided us a Savior through his Son, who took our sins, died in our place, and paid for it in full, so that we can be accepted by God, redeemed and reconciled. And it requires us to respond in faith, turning away from our sins and turn to him. And if that's, if that's you this morning wanting to believe that, ask that the Lord will give you his spirit, that he would open up your eyes, and that you would turn to him and believe in him. And for the rest of you, like, you, you know of somebody that might not know God. Why don't you lift them up in prayer that the Lord would move? that wherever they are, whether in this building or anywhere else, that God would send his spirit to open up their eyes and interrupt their life. Lord, can you save people that as we proclaim your gospel, can you send your spirit to open up eyes and to transform them? As we get to the table, we're reminded of what a privilege we have in Christ. Again, we're reminded we don't bring anything to this table. The only reason we can come to this table is because of what Christ has done, what his spirit has done in illuminating truth to us, allowing us to understand, convicting us of sin, giving us the ability to turn to him. 
What a privilege that is. That God's acceptance of us is not because of our performance, but what Christ has done on our behalf. And so as we get to the table, again, we can be reminded of our faith is in him and him alone, not in our ability, not in our wisdom, not in in our intellect or our self-discipline, but in Christ because of what he has done for us. What a humbling, sobering truth that is. And so we can receive these elements praising God in humility, saying, thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us and providing for us. Thank you for giving us your spirit and transforming us and making us new. So let's go ahead and and distribute these elements and meditate on these truths. What incredible grace the Lord has given us by giving his son to die for us. His body was given to you. Eat it in remembrance of him. His blood was shed for you that paid for your sins once and for all. The new covenant you now have with him. Drink it in remembrance of him. Lord, we thank you, we praise you. Lord, help us not to take these things for granted. Help us to be in awe of you and the provision that you've made for us on the cross. Help us to put our faith in you and in you alone. Help us to fix our eyes on you. And help us to walk with the Spirit and step with the Spirit. To continue, continually to take off the old self and put on the new self. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us your Spirit. That you've made us new. So help us now to walk in obedience to that. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our Lord and Savior? Amen. Let's go tell the world of the treasure that we have found and that God has revealed to us through his spirit, knowing that as you proclaim this message, you are demonstrating the the spirit power. Receive this benediction from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23 to 24. It says, Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Go and proclaim this message in Jesus' name. Love you guys. Have a good week.